for um, Dana Grip. Um, some of you might would remember her from she was one of the song leaders for the VBS Kids Music, but um, she just lost her baby um, today. Uh, she was six months along, so and now they're having to you know she's going to have to deliver um, deliver it tonight. So um, definitely keep her and her husband Guy in your prayers. Um, that's got to be you know an awful thing to go through. Um, continue to pray for Myrene, who's recovering from her surgery, and I guess doing well. She was at the women's study last night, so the day after, you know, four and a half hours of surgery. Um, so definitely they'll hold her up in prayer. You know, I know it's not easy for sure. Um, also, we're blessed that Van Simmons is here tonight, and he's been, been recovering for some time from a serious accident, and now one of the lasting effects is um, his ring finger on the hand that he uses to push the strings on the guitar is broken, and so we want to pray that God will just heal that finger up right away and allow him to get back to playing his music that he loves to play. So let's just uh, go to the Lord with these requests. Oh, also, one other one. Um, and this is kind of a praise report and a prayer request, but Paulette Delardo, who we've been praying for for quite some time uh, with cancer, they had found that her cancer was not pancreatic as they had originally thought, but it's in the liver. But because they thought it was originating in the bile duct and going to the liver, they didn't really think there was much hope and there was no way they could radiate or anything. Well, they just got another test in and um, apparently it's just in the liver, not the bile duct. And so they're praising the Lord today that they're going to be able to do some radiation, some specialized radiation and that has a much better prognosis than to the chemo that she was going to have to do that didn't have a great prognosis. So we'll keep Greg and Paulette in our prayers and um, just thanking God for what he's doing there. Let's pray. Lord, we do hold... Dana and Guy up before you right now, and even as Dana's having to go through this, um, such a difficult process, and after wanting to have children for so long, and Lord, I know that this is tough on both of them, and challenging to their faith, and in every way, Lord, in it. God, I just pray that you would surround them with your grace. You tell us that as our days, so will our strength be. And so I pray that today you would just give them a peace out of nowhere and just a great sense of your love and your goodness. And Lord, just touch and heal them both quickly. And we pray that if it's your will, you would still fulfill that desire and dream they have of having children so please bless them tonight and surround them with support as well and help lord we thank you for myrene and how well the surgery went we know boy it's it's a tough recovery and there's a lot to it and so god we just ask that you would really work in her body tonight and in her spirit as well just Comfort her and encourage her and, and heal her quickly. I thank you for her witness. 
through this process. And Lord, I just pray that you'll continue to show grace to her and, and give her help and healing. Lord, for Van, I just thank you so much that he's so much better. And yet, Lord, I know that for someone who's, whose ministry is all done on the guitar pretty much or a good extent of it, I know how big of a deal that finger is to him. And Lord, it's yours. His talent is yours. And his opportunities to serve are yours. And so God, he can serve you much more effectively with a healthy ring finger on his left hand. And I just pray that you would touch him. And whatever needs to happen for that finger to to heal and to be restored, then um, I pray that you would just do that by your spirit, Lord. And God, I, I thank you too that for all that you've done for him and the healing that you've done through this, Lord, just continue to to work in him. And for the Delordos, for Paulette, I just thank you for her sweet spirit and for the fact that through all this you've spared her from great pain. And Lord, now the fact that she doesn't have to go right into that chemo that she was dreading and can get the radiation, I pray that you'll cause it to do your work, that the doctors, the equipment, it would all be in your hands and used to, to heal her and to give you the glory for that. And Lord, comfort and strengthen Greg as this is difficult for him to go through. And Lord, just work in a mighty way and we will give you all the glory. Lord, as we look into your word now, we, we put ourselves in your hands. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 2. When we're dealing with the book of Romans, it's like the book of Ephesians that we're studying on Sunday mornings, and these things deal so much with some of the same concepts and teachings and ideas, it's really important for us to keep in mind what this is really all about, because it's all about God's grace and the fact that God deals with us through His grace as opposed to a merit system. Now, if you weren't here last Wednesday, I, I never say this, but I would strongly encourage you to get the tape of last Wednesday's study, because I kind of laid out in an introductory form what I, I, I mean, the, what we saw last Wednesday, I think, might be the most important thing that you could ever study in the scriptures. I, don't, I can't remember a study that's more important than that one because we went into detail about this is what the Christian life is about. It's, it's walking by faith through the grace of God. And I just think that we are so brainwashed to believe in a, in a merit system that it's hard for us, it's a struggle for us even as Christians to not get past that. And we believe that we're saved by God's grace, but then we go on to, to live by our works, to somehow think that if we are better, good people, that we're going to earn some kind of deeper relationship or better standing with God or God will love us more. Um, at the same time, obviously, we fail at that 
And then we start to feel defeated and feel that God must be angry with us. He, he must love us less. We will never learn to live the Christian life the way God wants us to until we just get that completely out of our minds. We cannot earn anything with God, ever. We never will. It's not about us, you know, being good enough. Now, it's not about us just deciding to stay bad either. God wants to do that work. We find, as we talked about last week, that when you try to be good, it just doesn't work. And the harder you try, the more you will fail. And ultimately, you will either give up in frustration, which isn't a bad thing to do because then you're ready to hear the message of grace. Or what usually happens is you get better than most people and you just decide to think you're better than others. And so then you begin to judge others. You start pointing the finger at other people and sniffing out their sins rather than just being aware of your own need for grace and and grateful for the fact that that is what happens. And so Paul has been in this chapter dealing with legalists, people who believe that it's all about earning something with God. And in this case, specifically, a lot of those legalists he was dealing with were Jews. And so he deals with their relationship to the Old Testament law, but that is something that applies to everyone who tries to live even by the Bible, because remember, that's what the law was to them. It was their Bible. And yet, they felt somehow that it was the rule book and that they would therefore become good by doing it. And so he said, you think you have the answers and you're teaching others, but the very fact that you are pointing the finger at others is a strong indication that you are hiding something yourself. We talked last week about how that is the case, invariably. And, and then in verse 24, in the end of that section, he says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Because they're boasting in the law and then dishonoring God through breaking the law. Verse 24 is a mouthful because... That's really what happens. There are an awful lot of people who will not even consider a relationship with Jesus Christ because they have sensed the hypocrisy within the church. Now, whenever people say, oh, you know, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites, we have a lot of clever answers to, you know, say, well, you know, to imply, well, you guys are hypocrites too. And certainly that's true. Um, to a great degree. But that doesn't let us off the hook. The fact is, if we are proud of our own accomplishments, we're driving people away from Jesus. Because what people need who don't know Jesus is to realize and recognize the grace of God. To understand that you don't have to earn it. It's not about you being good. It's not about you being better than others. It's not about you being on a self-improvement program. It's about you receiving the work of the Spirit in your life. 
And now it's no longer your merit that has anything to do with your standing before God. It is all of grace. This is the truth that just completely changed the church in the Middle Ages when it occurred to that young monk, Martin Luther, the truth of what the scriptures say, the just shall live by faith. Understanding God's grace, understanding that a life that flows forth from a relationship with a gracious God is the only hope of us ever living a life that's worthwhile at all. And anything else invariably deteriorates into hypocrisy. And that's what legalism does. And, and the Lord is here upbraiding his own people and in, in this quote you know, that where um, Paul here quotes from Isaiah and Ezekiel, both who said, the Gentiles are turned against God because of you. And that's kind of a heavy thing to realize, and, and, and in a lot of ways, it puts a burden on us. Often, preachers will use this kind of language and shame us for our sin and say that you're a bad witness because of your sin. But in actuality, it's not usually our sin that's a bad witness. It's our hypocrisy. It's our phoniness. It's our legalism combined with our sin. If sin is not a problem for the child of God who admits their sin, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That just means we agree with him. But we don't want to do that. When we sin, and even when we're caught in sin and it's obvious there's something inside of us that wants to fight against that, that wants to minimize our sin, that wants to blame others for our sin, that wants to conceal it and come off in the best light. When the cross of Jesus Christ is such an amazing gift for us that we don't have to have anything to hide. Whatever it is that we've done, however it is that we fail, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from that. Sin should not be a problem for us. Sin is an issue with us because sin will destroy us. But the only way to have victory over sin is to appreciate and understand God's grace. And, that, and Paul is going to be talking about that through this whole book. But it all comes down, and what he's really emphasizing here is something that shouldn't have to be emphasized we all sin. That shouldn't come as a news flash. We are what's, you know, the problem for ourselves. Years ago, well, there was a, a, guy, a, a, a newspaper in England that they decided to do a series on what's wrong with the world. And so they picked some of the most renowned um, philosophers and theologians and personalities of the day. And they sent to each of them a form, requested that they would write a paragraph or a few sentences in response to the form. And at the top of the form, it said, what is wrong with the world? They sent one to G.K. Chesterton, who's an amazing Catholic theologian, apologist, philosopher. He was a huge influence on C.S. Lewis. Chesterton took his 
And he returned the form. He took it and it, it said, what is wrong with the world? And he simply wrote on it, I am. And he sent it back. And that's the first step toward understanding a relationship with God, is realizing with an awareness of reality, a sincerity, a humility, that the problem starts with me. I'm what's wrong, not something else that I can point out. Now Paul continues here and, and uses circumcision, as he sometimes does, something that the Jews were so proud of. because And, and circumcision was designed to set them apart, to cause them to be different than everyone else. And circumcision isn't the kind of thing you would think someone would brag about. Um, I mean, it's done to you when you're a little kid. You don't have a say in it, and it's really, it's, you'd think it'd be a private matter. It's why, you know, God wanted them to understand that righteousness and a relationship with him was something very private and personal and at the very source of life itself. But they turned it around and made it something that they bragged about and something that they would, you know, insult other people as being uncircumcised Philistines and things like that. So Paul sometimes uses it, but he's not just talking about circumcision. He's talking about, in the flesh, any kind of merit thing that you think makes you better than other people. And so it's, it represents the whole following of the law, following the rules, and living a righteous life. So he says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. So he goes, yeah, it's good if you're following the law and you're circumcised. That's good as long as you can keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, which he already said that they certainly are, and it's demonstrated by their judgmentalism, which always shouts, screams hypocrisy. If you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You might have the marks in the flesh, but the truth is, unless you're following the law, don't be bragging about you being different than someone else. Circumcision was to set you apart as being different, but are you living it? Is there really a difference? Is there a distinctness, or are you just proud of your flesh and bragging about it? Therefore, verse 26, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Now, first of all, this is kind of a ridiculous thing because no one can keep the righteous requirements of the law. But he's using this to make a point that if you were righteous in every other way except that you didn't bear that physical right of circumcision, wouldn't that make that... If you found somebody who was righteous in every way, but they were uncircumcised, wouldn't that be more important than living a life of hypocrisy and being circumcised? So he says, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. And now he's getting real personal with them and says, okay, forget somebody who fulfills the law completely 
How about if there's somebody out there who, who doesn't know anything about the law or God's word, but they're better than you? Can't they point the finger at you? Can't they judge you? And the truth is, yeah, not only they can, but they will. And that's what happens. It's why some really good people can't understand why they should become a Christian. Because they observe in the Christians around them such a hypocrisy. And they say, man, every time... I know people who, who won't do business with a Christian. If they see that little fish on their ad, they move on. And there are some Christians who won't do business with Christians. Because you've been ripped off probably more by Christians than you have by non-Christians. Manipulated and conned in, in ways... I had a friend who was a fraud investigator, and he told me that in all of his years as a fraud investigator, something like 70% of the people he arrested for fraud were professing Christians. Now, that large of a percentage of the population among people who are committing fraud blatantly enough to get caught, that's, that's embarrassing. Just like it's embarrassing when all of the statistics come out about other sorts of problems and finding out that Christians are, are not so distinct. We think we are, we pretend that we are, but there's a problem here. Because we as believers are no more capable of making ourselves good and of following the rules than anyone else is. I, I have mixed emotions about that old bumper sticker that said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Because I thought part of it was maybe just an excuse for cutting you off on the road, you know. But there's a lot of truth to it, too. However, the truth is also we should be better than the world. We should stand out for our quality of life, for our, for our uniqueness. God wants us to. It's just that the way to get there is not by legalism. That will not cut it. That will not get you there. Again, judging others is the sure indication that you're living a life of hypocrisy. And yet, it is important for believers to find out how to live a good life. And again, the book of Romans Paul is laying out how that happens, how it ought to happen. But before he does it, he tears out all the foundations of the way that most people live their lives. And because most people are living their lives by the merit system. Way more than we want to admit. We're doing what we're doing because we think somehow it's going to merit us. It's going to benefit us in some way. And you know, I catch myself all the time and hear others as well saying things that absolutely smack of legalism. Even we're, Ann and I were talking on the way to church about somebody we we're concerned about because we wish they'd get into the Word more. And then there was a kind of a confusion about it because it's like they're not into the Word that much, but man, they're such a good person. And for us, that it's like, how could that happen? That someone could be good without spending hours in the Word. 
Now, what does that tell me about the way we look at things? We think if you spend time in the Word, the result is going to be that you're going to be good. So you're spending time in the Word because you think you need to do that in order to somehow make you closer to God. And that is putting the cart before the horse. It's getting things backwards. You know, the... the um, parable of the prodigal son is one of my favorite scriptures and every chance I get I, I talk about this because most people miss the point of the parable of the prodigal son. There's a great point about if you go out and waste your you know, subsistence and you know, that God will always receive you back and that's a beautiful picture that everyone has of the prodigal son. But the point of the prodigal son, um, Jesus was talking to Pharisees legalists and it was really the older son that was the point of the parable he was the one that was nailed by the parable both sons were lost each in a different way and the older son is probably the greater danger the son that goes off and ends up in the pig pen guy like that's going to get called his attention called to something wrong in his life but an older brother who's always doing the right thing for the wrong reason, nobody's going to call that guy on it. And here in his abject, disgusting, hypocritical judgmentalism, as he refuses to go into the party with his dad to celebrate his brother who's been found, he shows, you know, on the one hand, one brother was off and... Um, wasting his life the other brother was faithfully at home doing everything he was supposed to do now if you have two kids you'd rather have the one be the older brother you'd think but what happens in that story and i recently read a a great book on the prodigal son i i have i've never found anything on the prodigal son that i thought got it and this book totally gets it it's a book by tim keller a presbyterian pastor from new york city and the book's called The Prodigal God. And in there, he points out that the older brother, it's a short book too, read it. Um, <laughs> in there, he points out the older brother, when he, he refuses to listen to his dad and he doesn't want to celebrate with his dad, he's showing and he's going, haven't I been a slave to you all these years? A slave. He was doing what his father wanted him to do, but for the wrong reason. He was doing it because he had to. And then he's absolutely resentful of his father's grace toward the one who needed it the most, his brother, and he wouldn't even call him his brother. And what Keller points out, and it's a great point, the older brother wanted his father's stuff, just like the younger brother did. The younger brother wanted his dad's stuff, and so he went and asked for it and partied it away. The older brother wanted his dad's stuff, and so he followed all the rules so that he could have his stuff. But he didn't want his father. He didn't want that relationship with his father because as soon as his father did something that seemed to him to endanger his own inheritance, his dad's stuff, 
He doesn't want to have anything to do with his dad. He's angry at his dad. He's, he, he's accusing him because, and in that moment, he shows, you're just like your younger brother, except he acts it out with rebelliousness, and you are manipulating your father for his stuff in a way of forced obedience. And that's huge. And that's something that we, we need to understand because sometimes we don't recognize it. And sometimes God will bring good people into our lives who aren't Christians just to call our attention to this. Are there people in this world who are more thankful than we are, even among the non-Christians? I'd say sometimes. Are there people who seem to enjoy life more than many of us Christians do, even though they aren't Christians? I've certainly seen that. Are there people who care more for the needy than many of us do? There are people who devote their whole lives for others, and yet they don't know Jesus. And how do you explain that? I mean, it shouldn't be. Certainly having a relationship with the God who made us ought to turn us into people who are really righteous. But the reason it doesn't so often is because we think we have to. And we are laboring, and we are pushing, and it's all just our attempts at manipulating God and getting something from Him, and that will never sustain itself. That will never last over the long haul. Now, what Paul is getting at here is, he's getting real personal, and he's telling them, some of these people that you would want to reach with the good news are better than you. Deep down inside, they are exemplifying what life is supposed to be like more than you. And they don't know the law. They don't have the word. They don't get it. It's just they're good people. And that ought to tell you something, that ultimately there's something wrong with the way that we are living out our lives and the way that we are living in the grace of God, because no one in this world has a better reason to rejoice than we do. No one in this world has a better opportunity to fellowship with others and to care about others and to reach others, to, to show his love to them than we do. He's done so much for us. There's just, it's, it's unfathomable that we would not stand out as being good people. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In case you think he's not serious about it, he also says when it comes down to it in the judgment, the sheep and the goats are going to be divided at my right hand and left hand based on, hey, did you visit those in prison? Did you feed those who were hungry? Did you clothe those who were naked? Uh, were you there for other people? Did you show compassion? This is the, this is the indicator, and yet, I don't think there's anybody more than Christians who try to do that 
we're always creating programs and pushing fundraising and doing late night TV telethons and everything else to try to force people to feel guilty enough to be compassionate. But something is wrong because it isn't happening naturally. It happens hypocritically. And that should tell us that something's wrong. And the very existence of good people who don't know God, instead of pretending like that doesn't exist. And this is so often what Christians do. If you say something like I just said, and chances are in a room this size, some of you are already writing this down so that you can email me about it tomorrow. And you're going, no, those people aren't really good. They're just faking it. They don't, they don't really have compassion. That's just their way of looking good or getting votes or whatever. Yeah, okay, if you want to believe that. But I know people who don't know God who put me to shame in their love for others. And I, and I believe that to be a fact. And if you, if you want to make excuses and not believe that, it's fine. But what Paul is saying here to these Jews, these legalists, he's going, your problem is the reason why, as he said in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, it's because you haven't figured out how to live this life in a way whereby you can have the righteousness that God has designed for you to have. You're doing it the wrong way. You're going about it the wrong way. You're going around uh, in, a, in a backward, phony sort of way. And so you're commanded to love, and you don't know how to love, so you think, well, the next best thing is to pretend to love, is to act like you care, and to play that game. Now, there are certainly plenty of people in the world who are doing that for reasons. I'm not suggesting that's not the case. But there are obviously people who we would at least disagree with theologically who could put us to shame. But it's because we don't understand how to get to true righteousness that's walking by faith, that's responding to the grace of God. And so instead we put ourselves to work and we try really hard and if things don't go our way, we're angry at the Father because he isn't appreciating our efforts. God, I've done this and this and this for you. Why would you let this happen to me? What does that say? Every time we say, why me, Lord? What we're saying is, I've earned better than this. But the key to the Christian life is to recognize you haven't earned anything. You can't earn anything. Now, he's going to go on and explain that discovering that truth is going to set you free, and then you'll end up discovering how this works. And it certainly isn't something that's going to turn you into somebody who just lives a life of sin guilt-free because, well, I'm under the blood and God's grace and everything. Paul was accused of that, though, and he's going to go into it here in the next chapter, we'll see in a moment, of teaching in such a way that People would, you know, and Paul deals with this several times where people t say, oh, what Paul's, the way Paul's teaching, if you believe him, then, then you'll just sin more because then you'll get more grace. 
you know, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, party on. And that's what they accused him of. Of course, that's not what he's teaching. But it should tell you something right there. It tells you what his message is because it was so easy to accuse him of that. To believe that is to believe that you can't trust grace. You can't trust relationship. The way it's supposed to work is we are so absolutely blessed by what God has done for us. And having the burden lifted of ever having to earn that, of ever having... No, we're so secure in His love. Working hard so often is out of insecurity, but when we're so secure that He loves us, we know it, He has proven it, His his son died for us. And the way Christian life works, the way gospel living works, walking by faith, the way it works is I am so thankful to him that that gratitude changes my life. And I no longer am good because, you know, because I need to be. But he gives me the desire out of gratitude that I just want to please him, not to get anything from him. It's, it's relationship. When you fall in love with someone, no one has to tell you to, to want to please them. It's, it's a natural reaction at first. And if someone does something really good for you, you, and it's not about paying them back because often it's something that you could never pay back. But at least it puts you in a better mood. At least it causes you to react in a, in a different way, in the same way. When someone's rude and mean and thoughtless to you, you just don't feel like doing them any favors. You might not do anything mean to them, but you're not particularly motivated to, to please them. If, you know, you get pulled over for speeding and the cop comes up and talks to you and he's really nice. This is just makeup. But, <laughs> but let's even say that it turns out it's a cop that you know. Well, and he says, look, just let me tell you right away, I'm not going to give you a ticket. We're brothers in the Lord, I know, you know, and so don't worry about it. No ticket, but let's just talk for a little bit. Would you go, you know what, I'm busy. Just give me a ticket and let me get going. But no, if there's a relationship there, you're, you're grateful, you're appreciative. And as you drive away, is your attitude different than driving away after someone just gave you a ticket? Now, if you just got a ticket, you may drive away nice and slow. You're not going to screech your tires and kick dust all over the cop car and go peeling out because you don't want another ticket. But if, if a guy's really nice to you and lets you off the hook, you're just, it puts you in a good mood. It, it could make your whole day. If you got pulled over for speeding, that feeling in your stomach, and then it's like, hey, don't worry. It's cool. It's fine. That makes your day. Well, Man, we have been let off from the biggest ticket to hell there could ever be. And what's our attitude? 
Years ago, uh, a friend of mine who goes to our church, Tom Gazy, he's a police officer. Um, I won't say which city because uh, I don't know if you're supposed to do this, but he, he pulled over a guy going like 120, 130 on PCH on a motorcycle. And it was a guy Tom knew from church at Calvary Costa Mesa. And this guy saw Tom, knew him right away, just starts crying, and he's so upset, and he knows. And Tom just rebuked him, told him, man, this is unsafe, it's a bad witness, and, you know, but I'm going to let you go. And he let him off for what he should have gone to jail for. And the guy was so grateful, saw him at church on Sunday. Oh, man, Tom, thanks so much, man, that was such a blessing. Two weeks later, same guy, same strip of road, same motorcycle, going just as fast. He pulls him over again. Now, I know you figure the rest of the story is that time he threw the book at him, but he let him off. <laughs> it's just, but is that how we would be with God? That he lets us off from hell for nothing? And we go, how can I pay you back? And he goes, you don't pay me back. You can't pay me back. Don't worry about it. I'll see you in heaven. And I'll be with you all along until that happens. Oh, man. When you understand that, every time you're tempted to earn it, or every time you fail to earn it, and you're reminded of God's grace, trust me, the appreciation, gratitude, and joy that comes forth from being aware of God's grace will make you a better person. It can't help but make you a better person. And a person whose life doesn't change is a person who doesn't understand the grace of God and his forgiveness. It's why the scripture says that it's the goodness and the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. It's not being afraid of God that brings you to repentance. What really will turn your life around is understanding what he has already done for you. In the case of the prodigal son, if I was the dad, the temptation would be with that younger son, hey, I might let you live out in the barn for a while. And you can see, maybe you can earn your way back into the family, but man, you've done a horrible thing and I need to lecture you and I need to explain to you all that you've done and I need to convince, and, and you better show me the fruits of repentance. You better show me that you are really sorry. I want to see tears in your eyes. I want to see pain on your face and then we'll talk. Our Heavenly Father, the father in the story of the prodigal son, he... Uh, he wouldn't even listen to the kid saying he was sorry. Put a ring on his finger, robe on him, cleaned him up, killed the fatted calf, and threw a party for him. Crazy. But what do you think would have a greater chance of working to really make someone grateful, appreciative, and just happy to be in fellowship with you, happy to be around you, Righteous son number two won't even come to the party. He's disgusted by his dad. The younger son, who has been so overwhelmingly forgiven, the logical thing would be, man, he's going to be close to his dad the rest of his life. He will have learned the lesson 
that he needed to learn. And so here, Paul has to go to people who are good outside the law and say, don't you get it? Look at them. The physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, don't you see how he judges you? Who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. See, it isn't about outward at all. Our eyes are generally on outward, and that's why we try to polish the outside and make it as presentable as possible. And That's why it's true what I heard George Burns say one time, the most important thing in life is sincerity. If you can fake that, you've got it made. That's the way we live because we think it's outward. He goes, that's not the point of circumcision. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that at the, of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You're looking at the outside, he's saying, and it's interesting that he uses the word Jew. He doesn't use that very often. The reason he's using it is the, the word Jew. It's a play on words. The word Jew comes from Judah, which means praise. And so he says, being a Jew is about praise. But it's about inward praise, as he says, praise not from men but from God, a different perspective an appreciation for the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. It's not about technicalities. It's not about straining gnats and swallowing camels. He goes, righteousness is a matter of the heart. And what changes the heart? Relationship. Gratitude. Being set free. Having a burden lifted. You can be forced to do good things. And like the little kid whose mom made him sit in the corner, and he didn't want to do it. And finally, though, he sat down because she made him. And he said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> That's the best that legalism will do. An outward conformity that's impressive to others but a change of the heart? Never. The fact is, your heart will become harder because you will resent being forced to conform outwardly to something that really isn't a reflection of what's in your heart. And that's why the Bible over and over again, this isn't just New Testament truth. God said it so often in the Old Testament. Remember when we were just in Malachi a few weeks ago, and he was talking about, you guys, your spiritual feasts just disgust me. I feel like taking the dung from your parties and flushing you with it because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. God wants our heart. And he has certainly done enough to win our hearts. 
And I think a lot of times the reason why it doesn't happen is because of all of the legalism and the expectation and the rules and regulations and the brainwashing and the judgmentalism that exists within the church that absolutely, rather than letting God do a work on someone's heart, we fix them on the outside. And then they feel like, I'm starting to be like everyone else, but I don't even know why. I'm, I'm changing and I'm starting to feel good about myself. But there's this scary thing inside where what's outside isn't the reality of what's inside. And I am, people will look at me and go, boy, you're sure growing in the Lord. And I'm going, I'm growing in hypocrisy because my heart isn't there. Now, it's all about the heart. And if there are people in this world who have a better heart than I do, then I need to get back to that grace and meditate on what God has done for me. I need to be grateful and, 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 and thankful and to praise Him from my heart and appreciate Him and forget trying to be good. Forget trying to get myself enough you know, rules and regulations that somehow that outward change will end up affecting my heart. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And in fact, it doesn't work. Works about as well as some of these child-rearing techniques that have become popular in the church where you train kids like you're training a seal. You just, you force them to be respectful and they have to, they're, they're just pushed into a mold and forced to be a certain way and to act a certain way. And the emphasis is on so often, hey, people will look at your kids and say, boy, your kids are so, such great manners. They are so well behaved. You must be a great parent if your kids are so well behaved. And that's what we do. We're training kids like we would train an animal. Hey, look at my dog worship God. Praise the Lord, Fido. It's about that meaningful. Take the long run. What's going to happen when rebellion sets in down the road and a kid realized, man, my parents were using me to show off. They were training me because they cared more about what's on the outside then they care about what's on the inside. That's not lasting change. That, you know, for little kids to all line up and salute their parents doesn't impress me any more than your God-praising poodle. Because that doesn't tell me what's in the heart. Ultimately, real lasting change comes because of the grace of God on our hearts when this burden is lifted, when the pressure is off, and we feel like, oh no, that won't work. Somehow we think that if we really love our kids, and of course there's a place for discipline. You know, you, in order to keep your kids out of trouble, you have to teach them to conform in some ways. But to spend more time concerned about their heart is such a higher priority. And ultimately, if you get their heart and they, and they love you and they love God and they understand how secure they are in that love, 
it won't turn them into just beasts. It'll turn them into people who are good from the heart with a transformation that comes that way. And when you understand the spirit of the law, you won't have to worry so much about the letter of the law because that'll just happen naturally. And, and so Paul is here just letting them know, look, it is not about your outward conformity. It is not about how well you follow the rules, how impressed people are with your righteousness. This is an issue of the heart. And maybe you ought to learn something from people who don't even know about me, and yet they understand living life from the heart better than we do sometimes. They, they're enjoying life more than we are. They're more thankful and grateful than we are. They're more charitable sometimes than we are. I, I can't read their mind, but I can look, and as Paul says, you can't minister to someone whose heart challenges your heart. And yet, the grace of God, when it's understood completely, will cause us to have the best hearts, most pure hearts. We have the most reason to rejoice, to fellowship, to serve, to, to give in every way. We have the reason. But if we get our eyes off that and on externals, then ultimately... Rather than worshiping God in the spirit, we are following him in our flesh, and that will never please God. And as he says at the end, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Stop worrying what people think. Stop taking such great satisfaction in the fact that people approve of you. I'd love to have a dollar for every time somebody who's dealing with a problem says, you can ask anybody what they think of me. People tell me all the time that I'm the most loving, blah, blah, blah. I'm not impressed. It's not about what people think of you. It's what God thinks of you. And all he wants is your heart. That's it. He just wants a relationship with you. And you won't get there by following the law. You won't get there by making yourself good. You won't get there by earning your way to some sort of status. And that's what he is eliminating here. And then he's going to go on further in chapter 3 about this some more. But this is so, so critically important for us to get that out of our system, to catch ourselves every chance we can when that ugly legalism begins to rise up. Again, the warning light, judge, judging others. And then ultimately, I suppose doing good and having it wear you out. The Lord has spoken to me about this recently, about how often I'm serving him, but is it really out of relationship and gratitude or is it just because it needs to be done somebody has to do it such a subtle difference you could be doing all the right things and doing it for the wrong reason and it will cause you to resent god it will come between you and god rather than drawing you close to him and that's what he wants 
anything less than that is not Christianity. It's not the relationship with the Lord that the Bible wants to give us and, and that the book of Romans explains so powerfully. We're going to celebrate communion, and again, there is no better way to appreciate what God has done for us than to partake in the Lord's Supper, to receive from Him what He did for us. We couldn't do it, couldn't die for ourselves, our body, our blood, it doesn't mean anything. But His means everything. And as we partake in communion, it is a concrete, specific reminder to us of what he has done for us. So thoroughly and completely that when he finished dying for us, he said, paid in full, it is finished, te telestai, you're covered, it's, it's fine, the price has been paid. And so you can't possibly receive communion in a sense of earning it. How in the world could you ever earn somebody's body and blood? You can't do anything but just receive. And that's what he calls us to do. And it's a, it's a beautiful opportunity to remind us of what this grace cost, what, what he paid so that we could have a free um, and intimate connection with him that nothing can separate us from, that nothing can give us a good day or a bad day. They're all good days. They're all days in which the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So if the men will come forward to pass out the elements, we'll partake.